A reading from the book of Psalms, the reign of the Lord's anointed. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. With trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, the flight to Egypt and the slaughter of the innocents, Matthew 2, 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had, been, he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because there are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the children's life are now dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warmed, warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. A reading from the epistles to the Hebrews, Mount Zion and the Unshakable Kingdom, Hebrews 12. 18 through 29. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. 
If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkle blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will be escape if we reject him who warms from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have, made, have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. All right. So let's get into this message today. An introduction to actually understanding the Old Testament is what we've been trying for. And I don't know where I stopped off last week. And I've, I've been giving a lot more attention in the last few weeks to the scripture readings and Advent themes and so forth. So going forward, if you want to follow some of the places on the church calendar, uh, do so. But you can do it easily on, you know, just Google them and just learn to you know, what sources don't, you know, listen to the Mormons as much as you might to the Lutherans, <laughs> you know. So, all right. So what we're talking about is um, how to understand the, the whole New Testament better instead of, because a lot of what is today's uh, method of, of interpretation, most Christians you meet uh, know isolated scripture verses out of context. So one of the biggest things that can help you grow is to get some bigger theme ideas that you're always, always engaging when you, when you talk to God, when you read scripture and so forth. One is that Jesus is the central message of everything in both Testaments. Two is that books were written... Uh, with a major theme. So whenever I start discipling a person, I tell them, start in Matthew 1 and read all of Matthew, then Mark, all the way to Revelation, and then start over in Matthew 1. And at the same start, start in Genesis 1 and read all the way through the Old Testament until you get to Malachi 4, then start over in Genesis 1. And of course, you won't be on the same pace in both, but don't let yourself read less than a, a, a five or so chapters a week on either testament, and if you can read considerably more, I mean, five or so chapters a week would be an anemic diet, uh, you, but it would keep you from starving to death. But it won't put any fat on your bones. And we all know that the, most, the fattest people are the most spiritual because the Bible says good news puts fat on the bones. <laughs> That's just a joke, hopefully. People get all 
Um, but, you know, Matthew, what you want to do when you're reading Matthew is remember, Matthew had a major idea that he was getting after in his book, in the whole book. And it was more than the standard Matthew has written to the Jews to show the Jews that they missed the Christ. That's the standard evangelical idea. And that's um, a step in the right direction on, in, in a, in a uh, two-mile journey that, that's taking you about 10 feet. And that's probably not an exaggeration. Because Matthew is Jesus standing in the, uh, uh, in the prophetic tradition of priest, king, and prophet. And he's uh, finishing what they all started in the Old Testament. He's bringing a covenant lawsuit against the Jewish people against the city of Jerusalem and its leaders and the surrounding nation. And he's showing that the kingdom of God is being taken away from that people and it's being given to a new people who will produce the fruit of it. And that all the promises of God, as you know, Daniel talked about, uh, Abraham and his journey he started with Genesis 12. All the promises of God are yes and amen, 1 Corinthians 1.20, in Christ and, and in the new people that are high priest, that are perfect apostle, that our proof, perfect prophet is, is bringing uh, this new people that Jesus said in Matthew, I will build my ecclesia, my called out assemblies, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. This new assembly is what all Matthew is about. And the new assembly has a king. And, just, and he's the same king as the old assembly. However, the prophet who starts to bring the kingdom is not Moses. It's Jesus. And the prophets he's going to send are not Ezekiel and Jeremiah. They're Mark and Luke and Paul and Barnabas and Sylvanus and Peter and so forth. Not, those were not in important, order of importance. And this new, king, this new people will, bring, will actually, for the first time, honor the priest and hear his word. Because they'll take notes when Daniel Williams speaks. <laughs> and, the, and that's a step toward honoring the king. Because it's not about Daniel Williams. It's about that he's a messenger of the king to us. And we are following a king. Together as a people. So Matthew has, is like a book that's meant to be read as one book. So the fewest, the fewer seedings you can read Matthew in, the better. You know, I remember when I, I used to like to, uh, when I was like 17 or whatever, 
I liked Wheaties. And I'd sit at the table at 10 o'clock at night or 11 or 12. And after my parents went to bed, I'd pour a bowl of Wheaties. And I had a little stand there for my Bible. And the next thing I knew, it was three or four hours, in, three or four in the morning. And I had just read the Gospel of Mark over one bowl of Wheaties. <laughs> and, uh, of course, it takes a long time to eat a bowl of Wheaties because you, you have too much milk, so you have to add a little more cereal. Then you have too much cereal, so you've got to add a little bit more milk. <laughs> and then when you're, when you're 17, you know, it goes for a long time. But by the time you're done eating the bowl of Wheaties, you've also done with the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark has one theme, and it's written for one purpose, and it was commissioned by Peter. Peter asked Mark to write it, as did many others who were uh, leaders in the New Testament who knew Mark's association with Peter. And so it's Peter's gospel to us. And it's a really, really, really important book. And it fulfills hundreds of things from the Old Testament in Christ. So, um, all right. So, that's a couple clues as to, to what we're trying to get after is how to actually understand the New Testament. The New Testament starts with a covenant lawsuit against Israel, but especially against Jerusalem, Judea, and its leaders. And it's a taking away of the kingdom from them and putting all the same promises, provisions, and callings on a new people called the Ecclesia, called the Church of Jesus Christ. And that is what the whole New Testament's about. The New Testament is about the last 40 years of this old people who are going to be destroyed, and their destruction happens uh, from, especially from 67 to 70 A.D., when Titus and his army surrounded the rebelling Jews who were about trying to throw off the Romans. That's why the disciples in Acts 1 asked Jesus, is it at this time you're uh, giving the kingdom back to Israel? Because like today's premillennial culture, the average Christian thinks that God is going to bring his kingdom by a geopolitical event of the king of kings coming back and standing on the Mount of Olives and splitting it down the middle and set up a political reign uh, throughout the world where Jesus is the king and that he's going to reestablish Israel in the temple and they're going to be saved by works and temple sacrifice and then the church is going to be saved by grace and all that is just nonsense. And what God is doing is he's bringing a kingdom in a king named Jesus. And he is uh, uh, pronouncing Ichabod on that old people. As he says in Matthew, I'm going to take away the kingdom of God from you, and I'm going to give it to a nation that produces the fruit of it called the church. And he's always doing that. 
even today. If you study the liberal uh, uh, Catholics, the liberal Protestants, etc., who want to say that Scripture, that God doesn't do miracles today, and of course the, the fundamentalist Pharisees say the same, they're all shrinking. The ones that want to ordain homosexual ministers and do that, because what they're saying, like in Matthew, they're saying, we will not have this king reign over us. And the king reigns through people called apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And your response to Daniel Williams is your response to Jesus. And your response to your, uh, your teacher and school or whatever, to, to, to whatever degree they're actually representing the king, that's your response to Jesus. And they are saying, we don't, we won't have this man rule over us. And Jesus is saying, okay, have it your way. And that's why people are leaving those churches in groves. And both, in the, both the ones who are following the, the methods of the Pharisees and the ones that are following the methods of the Sadducees are shrinking nationwide and worldwide. And the ones that are, are growing more uh, close to what Jesus actually is saying and doing are exploding nationwide and worldwide. So, let's... Um, so, one of the ways that people misunderstand the New Testament in our day and age is there became an idea, again, many things changed from a little bit going back to the Pietist and the Anabaptist and so forth of the Reformation, but we'll just kind of focus in on approximately America's Civil War, the 1870s and so forth, but at, at the height of the fundamentalist uh, modernist uh, controversies and so forth, the conservative groups, the fundamentalists and so forth, who tended to follow the, the paradigms of how to interpret scriptures of the Pharisees. Uh, that's why they have cessationism. The Pharisees were cessationists. Jesus did redemptive miracles in their midst, and now did they say, oh, we don't know where you get that power. We know God spoke to Moses, and whenever God's giving a new word, he puts miracles to go with his new word. So we don't know where this Jesus is getting these miracles. If you read all the Jewish writings up through the second, third centuries, they don't deny that Jesus rose the dead, uh, gave sight to the blind, cast out demons, and so forth. They just say either we don't know where he got that power, or they attribute it to Satan. But his miracles were undeniable. But they were cessationists and it didn't fit their paradigm. And the Sadducees were anti-supernaturalist. They didn't think God ever did any of that stuff. 
even with Moses. The Pharisees are always okay with miracles as long as they were in the past. The Sadducees are always okay with miracles as long as they never actually happened, as long as they're just a story, fictional. And so with, those, with that paradigm fight came the, the basic idea uh, among conservative Christians that there's this big discontinuity between the Old Testament people and the New Testament people, between the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures. And that idea is so um, paramount that uh, as, as the scriptures warn in the New Testament, uh, if you remember when they wanted to, in Acts 4, when they wanted to discipline uh, Peter and John after the miracle of the lame man uh, being healed and walking and leaping in Acts 3, Gamaliel said, you better quit persecuting these people lest you find yourself fighting against God himself. Right? Because they actually were fighting against God himself. That's why the Judaizers sent people to follow Paul and the other apostles from city to city and, and have riots and oppose them. Right? And um, so, um, so this idea began to emerge that there's this great discontinuity between the covenants to the point where most conservative Christians actually think God will restore the temple and temple sacrifice, and that Jews in the Old Testament were actually saved by works, and that they'll be saved by works again uh, when the temple gets restored and the sacrifice system gets restored, and, and uh, that's uh, the, the most hyper thing called dispensationalism. That God does, uh, has a different economy and works different in different dispensations. And it's the way they avoid the logical conclusion that the, that the God of the Old Testament is a different God than the God of the New Testament. They don't want to ever say that, so they just say, well, God ch changed how he works. But guess what? If you don't change, you know, like Daniel just graduated from college... He might have got better at studying or whatever, but he didn't just like change how he works. <laughs> you know, right? You, it just doesn't happen that way. So, let's go over some of these things. Uh, in terms of old covenant Jewish scriptures and what we would call covenant continuity versus dispensational discontinuity. So the first thing that'll help you is to understand the immutability of all covenants. So let's read in Galatians 3, 15 through 18. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. 
The whole idea of dispensationalism is that there's no continuity between the covenants. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, who is Isaac and the Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promises. For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise as a gift, you might say. But God has gifted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Just like we often give things to our children because it's their birthday, not because they earned it. Now, this is really, really, really important because it says this. As you go through the eight covenants of the Bible, the first covenant of the Bible is the eternal covenant. The covenant between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit outside and above time before the heavens and the earth were even created. That covenant is mentioned in passing in Hebrews 13, 20, which I have listed on the sheet just above the verses I just wrote in Genesis 3. And we've talked about that passage many times. So in that eternal covenant, all the other covenants come out of that covenant and they cannot nullify that covenant, nor can they change that covenant. They must fulfill that covenant in order to move on to another covenant. So I can't say, I'm picking on Daniel Williams today, so I guess we'll just keep with that. I can't say, Daniel Williams, will you lend me another $100 if I already borrowed $100 from him three or four different times and never paid him back? Because he'd probably say, well, what about those other times I lent you $100 and you said you'd pay me back? I said, oh, yeah, we'll just put that on my tab. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, he, eventually Daniel will go, I don't think so, Tim. Uh, you know, like, uh, lending you another $100 is probably not a wise business decision. And I'm actually beginning to think that Christiana is going to get mad at me about it if I keep lending you $100 and you keep telling me someday you'll pay me back. <laughs> right? And you might eventually have to say, I can't lend you $100 because you didn't pay back the first $100 and I'm out of money, <laughs> you know, right? So uh, you, you can't go on to a new covenant that nullifies the old covenant. You know, uh, I don't think that uh, when we do the wedding ceremony and I take them through the vows and so forth, that, uh, you know, one of them's going to go, oh, yeah, but uh, I wanted to reserve the right to, uh, you know, add somebody else to this arrangement in 12 years. <laughs> Especially if this isn't working that good. <laughs> right? You can't do that. You can't. Every covenant has to stay in force and be fulfilled. And so their marriage covenant, which is... Uh, an eternal covenant and an earthly covenant at the same time 
it ends when one of them dies. You know, Catherine and I have been doing this community discipleship thing since the early 70s. The thing we're most pleased with is that we've dealt with a lot of marriages that came to us already in trouble, but of all the people who came to us before they ever started courting or whatever, and we were able to convince them, don't get married till you get some Christian maturity. Don't even bother courting until you get to that point. We've never had a particularly difficult marriage, let alone uh, anything close to a divorce. However, we've had two of the marriages that have ended. Because in one case, the husband died from cancer. In the other case, the wife died from cancer. And those are the only ones that those marriages aren't in force. And the one that the husband died from cancer, I, we lost touch with the lady, so I don't know if she remarried or whatever, but she's perfectly free to. And the, the one where the wife died of cancer, the husband got married again in a couple of years. So they can add and change to the covenant because the covenant was fulfilled when the person died. You know, Christiana is not going to pro promise to be faithful to Daniel for 20 years after he dies. If she outlives him or he outlives her, the whole arrangement is fulfilled at the death of one. Right? So, now, unlike what people, I, hopefully you can understand this, but you often uh, get a lot of Christian books That'll recognize the eight covenants in the Bible, the eternal covenant, the creation covenant, sometimes called the Adamic covenant or the original dominion mandate covenant or something like that. Uh, then there's usually, uh, let's see, the Noahic covenant. Then there's the Abrahamic covenant. Then there's the Mosaic covenant. What am I leaving out? Davidic covenant, new covenant, and marriage covenant. Um, you will often get people, I've lost my train of thought, that will, um, what is it? Yeah, that'll recognize all the, the, the same covenants, but they'll say the first covenant, the covenant of uh, the creation or Adamic covenant was a covenant of works. I've never found anybody who agrees with the thought I'm about to say, but it, nevertheless, it's right. I don't care if I'm the only one saying it. It doesn't matter. It matters if it's right. And it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with what God is saying and what the scripture actually says. The first covenant is a covenant of grace too. Because A, Adam didn't choose to be created. He didn't choose to have Eve be created. He didn't choose for them to be naked and not ashamed, and that is Mary. Uh, all that was given to him by grace. And in all covenants, if you, there are um, requirements. There's laws for obedience and, and disobedience. There's things required. You know, you might have a covenant with uh, your landlord where uh, you've agreed to mow the lawn. And so, like, if you've agreed to mow the lawn and you're not mowing the lawn, then you're breaking the covenant. Or if you agreed to pay, if I agree to pay Daniel the $100 on the first of the month, and I paid it on the fifth of the month, I'm breaking the covenant. 
And I have to say, Daniel, I'm sorry, I'm paying you five days late. Will you forgive me? And he, he might say, yes, I'll forgive you. But if he, he has the right to be gracious or not and say, I won't forgive you, or, uh, yeah, but you're going to owe me 20 extra bucks interest or whatever, you know, he can, you know, that according to whatever the covenant requires. So, um, each new covenant has to fulfill the previous covenant. You can't just add it or change ingredients to it. So, as Galatians is saying, when God made the Abrahamic covenant, then 400 years later, he makes the Mosaic covenant. That does not change the Abrahamic covenant. Because I can't add conditions to it. I can't say, oh, Nathan, I asked you to pay me $50 on the third of the month. Now I'm going to add $50 on the 18th of the month, too. <laughs> then you might say, well, what's the extra $50 for it? I don't know, just because I like to change, because I'm a dispensationalist. <laughs> I like change. <laughs> Nathan would say, I think I wanted you to become a covenant theologian again. Because <laughs> uh, I'm not paying the extra $50 on the 18th of the month. So, all covenants in the Bible are by grace. And God is actually working toward a particularly very important purpose. All this is to, to, to set us up so we hear a very, very big point coming up here. That all covenants are by grace, and all people, because at God knew, he foreknew and predestined all things, you didn't surprise him when you named your dog Rover, or Spot, or whatever. He, he's not like, oh, I was so surprised. He knew that from all eternity. And so when you, uh, he knew that Adam and Eve would not avail themselves of the grace that he was freely giving them because they had a relationship with him that was by grace. Did they deserve a relationship with him? Did they earn a, no, they, their, their relationship didn't have a forgiveness component, but it still was by grace. God granted it. Right? And God is un, ever, he's unchanging. So his favor toward them was permanent. But if they did what he requ there's, required them not to do, that is eat of the, knowledge, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there would be sanctions. And all, every covenant has blessings for obedience and, and sanctions for disobedience. And had they continued to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would have lived forever in our gracious relationship with God, enjoying his presence and enjoying his being, fulfilling the dominion mandate that they were called to do, uh, classifying the animals, growing in zoological knowledge, growing in agricultural knowledge, and there were gardens wouldn't have had weeds and so forth, and they would have 
cultivated them and so and all this kind of stuff. And they would have continued and their children would have continued in the covenant. But God never pre God foreknew and predestined, but in such a way that he wasn't culpable, they were. They broke the covenant. And part of the sanction, the sanction was in the day you eat of it, you shall surely get fat. Was that it? No. You'll surely enjoy some tasty, perhaps they were apples. People like to depict an apple. I don't know. Uh, no, it was you'll surely die. Now, God, you know, they have a change in their nature. They're broken off in fellowship with God, and God has to come. And he has to say, Adam, where are you? Do you think it was because God didn't know? No, for the first time, Adam didn't know. And Eve didn't know. They were lost. And so they tried, they, they tried to hide from the presence of God, which every fallen man has been doing ever since. If you really want to understand psychology or, or uh, most academic disciplines, start with the idea that man is spinning theories as fig leaves to try to hide himself in his nakedness and shame from God. That's the start of all modern psychology. Which is why, you know how you can tell if a psychology is right or not? Whether it works. Even Dr. Phil, not exactly an insightful guy, knows that. Right? Doesn't he? Dr. Phil goes, how's that working for you? They still have him, don't they? He's just older and balder, probably. Um, they still have Dr. Phil, don't they? Anybody know? Any television people out there? All right. So, and he didn't he, like that was his thing. I, I knew of Dr. Phil like 20 years ago, so I imagine these things don't change. He probably still goes like, "How's that working for you?" Right? <laughs> right? Is that right? And because it probably isn't working for him. And he, you know, like it's not like he's really insightful to say that because you know ever since sin entered the world, a lot of things aren't working. <laughs> But none of that changed the covenant. And guess what? Even though God escorted them to the garden and put a guard over it so they couldn't get back in it and stuff, and they eventually died. Adam lived to be 900 and some years old. The scripture is very clear on that, right? Did, did on the day they ate of it, did they surely die? Who said yes? Yes, okay. Who says no? Because they, they didn't die for 900 years. Okay, someone said they started to die. We need to be clear on this. So who just said that? All right, separation from God is death. Yes, they surely died. They didn't just start to die. They died. Their spirit was cut off from fellowship with God, and it no longer functioned the way it was created. They got guilty about things they weren't supposed to get guilty about because their conscience is part of their spirit. And they started to have obsessive-compulsive disorder. 
And they became really good blame shifters and excuse making. In the very first conversation with God, they were excellent. They were great. Did all of your kids learn to blame shift? And I should be talking to the parents. Like all the parents know that your kids learn to blame shift and excuse make. Can, does Carson uh, blame Levi and Levi blame Carson? Are they good at it? Did you have to disciple them in it? <laughs> right? Right? Did you have to teach Lily how to blame shift? I don't think so, Tim. Everyone got really good at it really quick. My wife tells me all the time that I'm a big blame shifter, and I just tell her, it's your fault. <laughs> right? You know, uh, the man blamed, uh, you know, his wife, and then he blamed God. The woman whom thou hast given me. And men have been doing the same ever since. If I had $100 for every time uh, some, I was counseling a, someone of the male species who blamed uh, a female on their problems, I could buy us a new church building. <laughs> right? And uh, so many people think it's God's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's, it's everybody else's fault except my fault. What's the problem with that? You can't do anything about it. It's disempowering. It condemns you to, to, to continue to have the same problem. You can take a pill for it but you, or whatever you can do, but you can't, you can't really go back and find God and be restored and with confession, repentance, new life, and everything else. Because the answer is to be made alive again. You don't need reformation. You don't need rehabilitation. You need regeneration. You need to become a whole new person. Well, i got to find a way to land here soon. But I, this is important. I hope we're getting this. Uh, so that covenant, that Adamic covenant... That includes things like be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, rule it. Is that changed? Did God say, Adam, Eve, I don't want you to have any kids now that you're all messed up? <laughs> right? Did he? No. Did he make them infertile so they couldn't conceive? As far as I know, all their kids were born after that event. That's what the Bible says. And they inherited Adam and Eve's sin nature. And whether you can understand this or not, you were actually in Adam and Eve, and you participated in their disobedience in a, in a great mystery of life. And you've had an ongoing conspiracy to keep hiding from the presence of God and and uh, blame shifting and excuse making and all those things and ever since then. Now, um, so that gave them this problem. Uh, this is how I'm going to try to lane. Uh, coming in for lane. Uh, 
this problem where they had a propensity toward a, a thing the Bible calls sin. I don't know about you, but I'm an expert at it. My wife will tell you. <laughs> no, hopefully she won't. I have to pay her big bucks not to. No. <laughs> you know, uh, we've all had this propensity to, to evaluate for ourselves what is good and evil, to decide what counsel we want to take, to decide what parts of God's word we want to take, uh, to have our, so our goals for happiness or whatever we want to think is the ultimate thing to pursue, like happiness is a thing, you know, and so forth. And so we all became rebels without a cause, and we all became uh, good excuse makers and blame shifters, and we all had false motivations and wrong motivations in this whole problem called sin. And that sin was total in this sense. It's an, there's a doctrine that the Protestants called total depravity. The Catholics called original sin. But it's, the, it's not that you're perfectly conformed to sin. Because I even know most of you. Not, no one's perfect. <laughs> and you're not even a perfect sinner. Some of you are pretty good at it, but, uh, <laughs> but you're not. You're not a perfect sinner. The most rebellious kid is not a perfect sinner. But every aspect of your entire being is very significantly to the point of satiated with sin. Everything. As my uh, friend, Ray Nethery, who I, uh, by the way, I talk to Ray Nethery and Ned Berube uh, every week. Uh, they're very excited about what God's doing in Grace Christian Fellowship. And, um, you know, Ray used to always say, cheer up. You're much worse off than you think. <laughs> because. Because this is what you need to see about the depth of sin. If I could do a good job, which I am not capable of, but if I could do a good job of landing on this one part of the concept here for today, that everything in your entire, every motivation, every attitude, every thought, every behavior, uh, every desire you have is completely dominated by, impregnated with, filled with sin. You're not just a little troubled. You're a mess. And if we were to somehow be able to move, bring God or Christ out of the equation, it would be so bad that it would be, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I've never been able to handle any kind of horror movies at all, even since I was a little kid. I can't understand why people watch any of that stuff. To me, it's worse for your spirit than pornography by far. And I can't, I can't handle, like, any kind of Stephen King or whatever, any of that crap. I can't do it. I can't even 
I don't like I keep a remote even when I'm watching sports. So especially during like October when they have all the Halloween commercials on and stuff, I got to be quick to change the channel because I can't see a second of that stuff. And uh, it's so permeated with demonic stuff and so forth. But if somehow, uh, thank God we can't, but it, let's just say theoretically we could remove Christ from, this, from your situation, it would be worse than the worst horror movie you could ever think of. Like your sin problem is not just a teeny little thing. If I could serve you or love you in any way, it would be to make you convinced that your sin problem is way worse than you know or will, could ever know. You'd have to be God to understand it, but of course God's not capable of sin. You, it's beyond, it's unsearchable. It's unfathomable. You know, one of the doctrines when we study the attributes of God is that he's, he's inscrutable, he's unsearchable. You can never fully know him. And so is our sin. So, now, that leads us to Exodus chapter 19, 18, or chapter 19, 8. Hopefully you know Exodus 9, 1 through 7 very well, like verses we talk about a million times at Grace Christian Fellowship, quoted by, uh, in 1 Peter 2, 5, and 9. Uh, you know, uh, if you, you shall be a kingdom of priests to me and my holy nation, my special treasure, if you indeed obey my voice, and so forth. So the, the worst thing that was ever said, worse than if I were to, like, you know, stand up here as a pastor with, like, a stream of expletives, was Exodus 8, 19, 8. This, I, I probably have to come down here. If you really understood what I'm saying, you probably would be tempted to stone me to death here. But when God got done delivering, if you indeed obey my voice and everything, the people of Israel said, some of you probably, is there kids in here? Probably shouldn't have kids in here. They said, all that God has said, we will do. Oh! <laughs> do you know why, why that's the most wicked thing that was ever said? They couldn't, they didn't have a prayer of, of, of they were, that was worse than an LSD trip for unreality. That was the most perverted, gross, evil thing that has ever come out of the lips of human beings. All that God has said, we will do. And so many Christians actually think, have that approach to their Christianity. No wonder you're not doing well. Now really, like you should go home and you know, tell some relatives, Pastor Greg quoted Exodus 19.8 from the pulpit. Like, it was a, That's why I had to come down here. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, can you believe that he said all that God has said we will do? That's so sick. What a pervert. What an arrogant monster. And the whole point of the entire covenants up until the coming of Christ was to show all the people of God for all time how disgusting that was. That's the major point of the whole Bible. 
is to say that's worse than the foulest four-letter words you ever heard. It's called religion. It's called self-righteousness. It's grotesquely evil. Because all that God has said, we will cry out to God for mercy to quit running from what he said and actually listen to it. (laughs) If he grants us the grace to cry out for mercy for it, and then, if, if he grants us the grace to cry out the mercy that we quit screening out his voice and running from his presence and trying to hide from the presence of God and blame-shifting and excuse-making, then, by his grace, he can re- if he recreates us into a new beings, we can actually begin to pr- progress in sanctification. And by the grace of God, we can actually begin to do some of what he said. And our hope is that he will save us so thoroughly that we will continue to do more and more and more of what he said. And that somehow in all great, this stupendous grace that's beyond anything I could ever articulate, because I'm not that good a speaker, that somehow we'll start zeroing in on Christ-likeness, and, and it'll get like more and more so, like a... Like a Thing that you're swirling, like something swirling around the bowl. That's a bad analogy, but you know, like a mag, like you know, something that's uh, going uh, in orbit, but there, but ultimately there's a black hole at the other end, and hopefully we'll be completely consumed in Christ, and somehow by the grace of God in eternity we'll be actually more like Christ. That's what they should have said, and the whole point of all the covenants, is to bring us to that realization. And that's the one overriding message of all the covenants. Now, if you got what I just said, then you'll probably be able to forgive me for going past time. Because that was actually more important than getting done on time. And that is the essence of our salvation. He has chosen in his great goodness to give us himself. As Revelation says, he is coming and his reward is with him because his reward is him. And he will remake us into creatures that actually love him, that actually want to hear him, that want to be intimate with him, that want to worship him, that want to obey him. They want to pass that on to others in evangelism, discipleship, and fruit bearing. They want to raise our kids that way. And that's an amazing miracle. And that's the covenants of all the Bible in a nutshell. And that's why there's a one continuous theme from the eternal covenant uh, until eternity because we are going to worship him forever in, a, in an orbit that keeps getting closer and closer and closer to him until we see him for who he is and know him and adore him. And he's going to, by the blood of Christ, he has sanctified us once and for all so thoroughly that as we continue to be pulled into that great uh, the, uh, the, that great hole of light, that opposite of a black hole, this exploding light that, you know, like in Revelation, it talks about how 
There's no need for a lamp there because the Lord, the Lamb himself is the light. The, the whole creation is the opposite of a black hole. There's this person called Jesus, and he's exploding out. And even as the, the reason when God said, let there be light, and there was light, 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 and so that the astronomers are just starting to discover what the Bible declared all along, that the galaxies are spinning out and spinning out and spinning out and spinning out, and there's more and more light and so forth, because there's this great light called Christ who's actually filling all of that until he fills it all in all. And we will live with him in that forever. And that is the gospel. Amen.